Not even a word. She came begging, Lord, son of David, not even his disciples has called him that yet. My daughter is possessed by a demon and she is being tormented severely. But Jesus gave her no reply. Not even a word. For the last eight weeks, we've stood here and told you that God is always speaking and probably to you. And um, if you posture yourself and you become familiar and conversant in scripture and you learn the art of discernment, you can hear him. I told you eight weeks ago that the reason we can't speak is because we can't hear. But there are times when the reason we can't hear is because God will not speak. Not even a word. At least to you. So this morning, uh, the pastor in me started to feel the last two weeks that there was a number of people in our congregation that have tried everything that we've said and it isn't working. And like the woman, you must be sitting there thinking, why won't he talk to me? He's talking to everybody else. What did I do? Is he ever going to talk to me? So if you'll allow me, I want to first speak for you. I know nobody can do that, but I'll try. And then I want to speak to you. Is that all right? What do you do when God is silent? I'm told that this is common among Christians even saints. Some years ago when C.S. Lewis lost the love of his life, Helen, to cancer, he collected his thoughts in a series of four little monographs that he published later under a pseudonym, N.W. Clerk, because he didn't want anyone to know those were his thoughts. Later it was published, A Grief Observed, and early in it, he goes into a rant. Meanwhile, where is God? When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you remember yourself and turn to him, you will be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, 
with the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the window. There is nobody home. Were they ever? Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so absent a help in our time of need? In December of 1979, two weeks before Christmas, Mother Teresa, the the saint of the gutter, they called her, traveled to Oslo to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Being two weeks before Christmas, she reminded the world that Christ not only came, but that he is always present. Christ, she said, is the radiating joy that is in the world. Christ in our hearts, Christ in the poor, Christ in the smile we give and in the smile we receive. Yet three months before she received that award, she wrote a private letter to her spiritual director, Michael Vanderpeet, and said, Jesus has always had a special love for you. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and I do not see. I listen and I do not hear. In fact, 10 years after Mother Teresa died, they released her letters, more than a hundred of them, in a book called Come Be My Light. And what did we discover? That the last half a century of her life, She wrestled almost every day with the silence of God. She prayed that the letters would be destroyed after she died. The church overruled her and published them instead. And now the world knows that all the while she was healing and loving and professing this presence of God, she faced in herself in emptiness. Lord my God, she wrote, who am I that you should forsake me? Once the child of your love, now I am the most hated one. The one you've thrown away as unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there's no answer. There's no one to cling to. And when I raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts are turned like sharp knives and they cut my soul. They tell me you love me. And yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. I have called this the crucible of silence. Because a crucible, as you know, is a melting pot where precious metals are melted and and, and purged and bonded and formed into something that's even more precious. And so if I were to stand up here and say stuff like that in the midst of your silence this morning, I just don't think that would cut it. That if I were you, that would feel to me like mockery. A crucible is also a cross. 
And a cross is the intersection of conflicting ideas and conflicting experiences. Where the uncertainty is great and one is in limbo, but out of a cross can come something entirely new. So on the one hand, God is good. He is my friend. He listens and he speaks. On the other hand, God torments me. He is my enemy. He slams the door of heaven and he never speaks. And these are true at the same time. I call it this because as I meditated this week on this woman who in just desperation comes and she, she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. She has no business being there. She's a, she's a woman for starters and in that culture, a woman was not allowed to approach a rabbi. She's a Gentile, so she has no business being in that house. And she has a daughter that's demon-possessed. Think Rosemary's baby. So the stigma is literally all over the village. And she finally gets the nerve to come in and sit at Jesus' feet. And what does she get? No reply. Not even a word. In that scene, I saw the last 39 years of my ministry. It started standing in a room with a woman just diagnosed with cancer after the church had prayed she be healed. She was not. And those of you that still read the Bible like a cookbook and think if you just follow the instructions, then the answer is forthcoming, you are wrong. We did everything. We dotted every I and crossed every T, and there she was. And she has put on the walls around her pieces of paper, eight and a half by 11, and she has written with her own hand promises from God. And I can't tell as I stand in that room whether she believes those or not. I don't. I wonder, are those really promises of God to her or are they just echoes of things God said 20 centuries ago to somebody in the past? And she's hoping she'd just hear one of them. And I get in the car and I drive away and I think, yeah, there is no God like Jehovah. I see an old man on the fifth floor of a nursing home. Lawrence, he's a patriarch of the church. He's literally prayed the next generation into power for the last 50 years. He's dying. It's taking too long. I say, Lawrence, how you doing? He says, I'm waiting to die. That's how I'm doing. 
It's taking too long. Why is God waiting? Take me. I said, um, have you asked him? And he chuckles like it was a stupid question. He says, of course I've asked him, pastor. I don't hear anything. Not even a word. Man calls me on the phone one morning. He just got back from a mission trip to Haiti the night before. His wife is left for work. He discovers a handful of love letters in the drawer. They're not written to him. 24 hours after he gave God his best, he's had 11 back surgeries. He goes down and does things he ain't supposed to do with his body. He gets back and within 24 hours, he finds out his wife's been having an affair for months. And he asked me to pray because he knows God won't answer him. And the woman calls me one afternoon and says, Pastor Steve, please pray for my baby. It, it's going to die. Hasn't been delivered yet. I said, Angela, what's wrong? She said, it, it, it doesn't have a brain. The top part of the head has not developed. And yet the baby is still alive. And they tell me that within minutes after it is born, the baby will die. Pastor Steve, does my baby have a soul? I said, I think so. Yes. She said, how do you know? If it has a soul, we'll bury it. If it doesn't, we'll throw it away. I said, where are you? I'm coming over. Sure enough, the baby was delivered and within an hour it died. And we baptized that baby. And then we stand in front of the sanctuary over the body of the baby and here's Angela, a believer in Christ, but young and next to her is her husband who does not yet believe and she is wanting desperately for God to say something, anything. And all she gets is the thundering silence of God. The man calls me Thursday afternoon sitting in a wheelchair with a revolver in his hand. Pastor, are you sure, positive, that every person who commits suicide goes to hell? He doesn't even come into my church. He said, I can't call my pastor. I can't tell him this. I know the only thing I can do is try to keep the man on the phone and partway through the conversation. You know what he says? I have cried and begged and pounded on the door of heaven. And you know what I've heard? Nothing. A leader in the community dies. A good Christian. And all of the skeptics go nuts. They just start picking at it. And they're saying, you know, if, if you're God, so good, and I'm trying to answer these questions, 
And every answer I come up with just causes two more. And finally, I walk away and say, you know, the problem can always be stated in ways for which there are no answers. I come back to the church. I close the door. I sit and I say to God, one time I want you to stand up and fight for yourself. Am I the only one who believes in you? You know what I hear? Yeah. Not even a word. What I've noticed is in this crucible, where God is good, but God is beating me to death. Hosea said, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he'll heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Jesus prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet an hour later, he said, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. They're in that crucible. I've learned that most people can't stand the uncertainty of this. And so they eject in one of two ways. One, they start talking. Or two, they leave. They start talking when, like Job's friends, they can't stand to sit in uncertainty and they turn into armchair theologians. Apparently, they have no idea that this crisis, this crucible, is not an intellectual problem. So no amount of intellect going to fix it. You can throw all the theology you want and this crisis will burn up your theology like fire burns straw. You're trying to answer a heart problem with a head answer. And I know that they mean well and I know that some of what they're saying is true. But I'm just not in the place to hear it right now. So if you're one of Job's friends who's uh, always telling me how God works and what I should do or what lies beyond in the name of heaven and for every one of you who can't hear God, would you please stop talking? Other people, they just leave. God pushes them and they stand up and they say, I don't have to take this. I'm a human being. 
I got dignity. I'm an American. You will treat me better than this. And with the wave of their hand and even less intellect, they just walk away and figure that's the way you are. You don't deserve me. And they leave. The remarkable thing about the woman is that she does neither of these. She stays. She hears that Jesus is in town. He's meeting in someone's home. He's teaching his disciples. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. She's tried everything. She comes to talk to the disciples and they can't help her. She's talking to the disciples because she wants to see him, but she can't get to him, so she talks to them. And they're trying every answer that they've been taught and it's not working. And so she barges into a room where she is not wanted and stands in the periphery and shouts from the margin, Lord, son of David, my daughter is possessed by a demon and it's tormenting her. Please help me. And Jesus says nothing, not even a word. And the disciples turn and they recognize her and they say to Jesus, tell her to go away. She is so annoying. She's pestering us. And Jesus says to the woman, I was not sent to deal with Everyone, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And it sounds like Jesus, well, let's just say it, is a bit of a racist. She's not the right race. And so he's not going to help her. But what Jesus is actually doing is restating his mission. He didn't come as a healer, he came as a savior in the plan of God. And the plan of God is to find a particular kind of people who will live in the world as extensions of God without leaving the world, be different from the world, and that's Israel. And so Jesus says, in effect, the plan of God is for me to start with the people of Israel. This goes back to Abraham. I will bless you and then through you, everyone else, but first you. So my plan is to redeem the people of Israel and then from Israel, we will redeem the world. 
And every American who hears this, some of you right now, you have been nursed on the American dream. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And Jesus says equal, yes, but there is still a first and there is still a second. There is a now and there is a later. And you're not now, you're later. Some of you right now, Ain't sure you like that, Jesus. God's going to treat me like that. You'll what? It's not like there's another one. the woman won't leave. She moves from the parameter, pushing her way through the crowd. Now she falls at Jesus' feet. And this time she just says, Lord, help me. And the scene is evolving quickly. If the silence of Jesus offends you, what he says next is really going to hurt. He turns and says to the woman, It is not right to take food from the children's table and give it to the dogs. And the statement is so offensive that right here, all of the Greek scholars rush in to save the day. They remind us that there are different words in the Greek for dog, and the word that Jesus used does not mean alley dog. It does not mean dog who lives on the street. It means lap dog, house dog, puppy. Thank you. So what Jesus was saying, they say, is not that the woman was a mutt. She's a labradoodle. And labradoodles are expensive. And they make such wonderful pets for the Jews, the children. But at the end of the day, what Jesus is still saying is, I did not come to feed the dogs. And you're a dog. There is no rescuing this text. And uh, what does she do? She says, that's true. Did she just admit to being a dog? She says, that's true. But even dogs eat crumbs that fall from the kid's table. if you're a disciple you could never hear this because you are so friendly and cozy with God that he can never hurt you 
He can't shock you anymore. He can't say anything offensive. He can't behave in ways unbecoming of your God. He can't cut you. He can't call you anything that is unkind and insensitive. You won't stand for that. But the woman, she doesn't care what he calls her. She says, in effect, you call me anything you want. Just help my kid. If you're in the silence of God and you're still wrestling with your dignity, can I just tell you, you have no dignity. You have nothing he doesn't give you. Nothing that doesn't come from the man you're begging from right now. If you don't think you're being treated fair, take it. So she says, All right, I'll eat the crumbs. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, my goodness, I just came from Jerusalem where I was talking with preachers and scholars and reformers and pietists for days. And I haven't seen what you got in any one of them. The woman will not let go. There's a scene in Genesis where Jacob wrestles with God in the middle of the night. In other words, God shows up in the night and he shoves the mortal and the mortal shoves him back. And, and God and Jacob get into a wrestling match in the middle of the night. For hours it goes on and finally the angel turns to leave and Jacob will not let go. And the angel, wanting to leave, turns and says to the man, what is your name? And he says, my name is Jacob. And the angel says, today your name is no longer Jacob your name is Israel because you have wrestled with God and overcome. Let the record show that the true Israel is one who wrestles with God and overcomes. The true Israel is one who stays in the crucible of silence. It is not one who resolves every tension with a packaged theology or a simple prayer. It is one who lives in the tension. Between 
the God they want in what he just did. What I'm telling you this morning is not everybody in the room who is wrestling with God is an atheist. It's time some of you learn that. On behalf of those for whom God is silent, we love him just as much as you do. But I just, for the life of me, can't figure him out. But I ain't leaving. One night on my bed sitting after my friend lost his daddy suddenly, untimely, I remember saying out loud, gosh, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. I ought to leave you. And then it occurred to me, where would I go? <laughs> this is a lover's quarrel. I love him, but we fight. On behalf of those who are stuck there this morning, you love him, but you fight. May I tell you, don't leave him. Don't walk away. Even if you can't explain this, stay in it and keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep knocking. In spite of the silence, you must keep knocking. It does not matter what you think you deserve. It doesn't matter how you think he should act. He's not. Keep knocking. Don't let go. Because if you knock, eventually you might get what you ask for and a lot more. But a lot depends on what you're doing now. And if you're a disciple, and God for you is behaving just like he should. Can I get you please to turn around and pay attention to the people that are behind you when we worship? I know you love worship, I do too. And every morning is like a session with Jesus. But you know, don't you, that every time you worship, there is somebody one or two rows behind you who hasn't heard anything in a long time. And it would be really great if you would just let them in. If you would say to Jesus on their behalf, Lord, son of David, 
whatever you've done for me, would you please do it for them? Because whatever you're doing to them, you're doing to me. Have mercy on them. 